low carb right for me? Why is nutrition so confusing? What should I eat for my long training session? Why do I get gut issues during exercise? Do I need to plan my fluids for a race or just drink to thirst? Do I need iron supplements? Can I have a beer after training or a race? Hello and welcome to Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. And we're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne. And we have combined over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Between the two of us, we've either worked with or consulted to the Australian Institute of Sport, High Performance Sport New Zealand, the South Australian Sports Institute, Cycling Australia, Triathlon Australia, Sports Dietitians Australia, South Australian Road Runners Club, and many, many more. We're also both researchers in sports nutrition at Monash University in Melbourne, and we really love translating the often complex science of sports nutrition into simple and practical strategies and messages for athletes. Each week, we're going to take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, the sort of things that people are often debating on their training runs or in the coffee shop afterwards, and we break them down, invite a guest expert and an athlete to provide their perspectives around those. So, welcome Steph, new year for the podcast, new intro. Mm, yeah, I like it. It uh, sounds very fancy to go with two fancy people. That's exactly right. And and what have you been doing, fancy person, number one? <laughs> I've been, I think, kind of enjoying the sun. Like I, um, yep. I was messaging you this morning, Al, um, and I, I did it to myself. I, I put in a, a pretty long session this morning and whew, I was dying in that heat, that's for sure. I'm trying to remember what it was. Was it something like 2100 repeats or something it crazy so uh, it was 25 by one minute on um that's right on, on off but like it's it's not too bad because i i actually have the offs as off at the moment just because i'm still kind of getting into it but it's um i i just uh it's a special session to me because i used to do one minute on off um with my coach who's since passed um jackie fairweather um mm -hmm. and i just know it really just always worked really well for me to get my leg turnover and, and concentrate on form. So, um, and she used to always just tell me, you know, focus on the process. So that's what I was trying to tune into and kind of not think about the heat too much, but yeah, mm. it was, it was, it was pretty warm. Mm. And how'd you pull up? Uh, pulled up pretty good. Yeah. Like I yeah. was dying in the last five reps. Um, and I think just drowned myself in water after, um, but it made me think about the, the session that we're going to have um, down the track, actually, about you know keeping cool during during um, the hot weather. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I survived. Um, and the other exciting news, Al, that I thought you'd also be really excited about as well is my wonderful flatmate Kate Gifford, who we've had on the podcast with her injury management. Um, yep. just found out today that she got into an internship with the VIS, which is pretty crazy. Like they, I think they have about potentially 200 applications or something for um, this internship for strength and conditioning. Um, and then it, and then they n narrow it down to about eight people or so for 
or 14 people for interviews and maybe six or eight get in. So, yeah, she yeah, found wow. out today that she got in, which is awesome. Yeah, awesome. Congratulations, Kate. Mm. What about you? What have you been doing? I know you've, you've um, had homeschooling still, so how's that going? Yeah, yeah. One of our kids, uh, for, for medical reasons, advised not to go back to school because there's COVID cases all around us, even mm. though schools are technically back. So, yeah, it's been a bit of a, a juggle, which is always fun. Um, but often, you know, you get their schoolwork finished pretty early and on some of these nice days get down to the beach for a couple of hours, which is nice in the middle of the day. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, other than that, just on um, on Swift a bit, actually, the last last week or two which has been good getting back into that a little bit more nice. um had a bit of a, a sprint off with a mate of mine jake over in your hometown of adelaide go jake and uh well it, he started but he he went too soon and Ooh. i just went straight over the top of him Ooh. in the last 100 meters and smoked him so that was a bit of fun <laughs> you did your um critical speed better or something right Oh, no, no, my Watt Prime. Yep, it was definitely Watt W Prime. Prime. It was very much anaerobic, yeah. <laughs> yep, but, um, yeah, no, it hit some pretty impressive numbers for me on the, the sprint, so I was pleasantly surprised. Good. But that's all right. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's enough about us and our fanciness. <laughs> so today's episode, Steph, uh, is the first one of our second year of podcasting. So what have we got in store? Yeah, so episode 26. Um, it's our one-year anniversary special. Um, so this is like a, a quick-fire summary episode. Um, so basically, yeah, we, we're going through the um, was twenty-five questions, right? That we've um, we've asked over this year. Um, well, twenty-four, because 24. the twenty-fifth was the breaking two, which wasn't so much a question. Yeah. yeah yep. Um, and so what we're doing is we're answering them, trying to be as brief as, as possible, so summarising them in two to three minutes. Um, and thank you very much for um, editing my waffle. Um, so, yeah, and then we've got three more episodes this year going right up to Christmas, uh, and then we're going to take a break uh, for a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it was. I think it was a really nice one to sort of do a bit of a, a recap on the year that's been, Steph. I know I really enjoyed sort of going back and, and looking at all the questions that we've covered, the 24 different topics that we've looked at so far and, and just revising those. We've had uh, occasionally over the last few weeks, actually, uh, quite a few new listeners to the podcast, which is great to see and, and thank you for listening. Um, we've had a few people go, oh, wouldn't it be great if you did an episode about this? And we're going, well, Actually, we did that six months ago. <laughs> Go back and listen to it. Um, actually, Jake, who I was speaking to about just before, was actually asking me when we were on Swift the other night. Yeah. Um, oh, so so what's the deal with caffeine withdrawal? I said, haven't you listened to that episode, Jake? It was only a few <laughs> weeks ago. Go back. And uh, and he did. And he was very happy with the answer. So that was yes, great. Um, but yeah, if you are new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, and this will certainly bring you up to speed with the uh, the last 12 months as we cover every topic in one hit. Yeah, and I think another common question we're going to start getting more now, Alan, because we're getting in the heat will be, I know for me when I run, I crave beer after, so we'll get the beer question. So we've recorded that already, people. Um, and then <laughs> um, and then we'll be ask, getting questions about the heat and humidity, which we've obviously had Ollie and we'll, we'll have another future episode um, on that particular topic too. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So whether it's low carb, whether it's, can I have a beer after training? Whether it's why do I get gut issues? Should I get a sweat test? Do I need to withdraw from caffeine? We're going to cover every single one of those this week. Yep. Excellent. 
All right. Well, let's do some social media shout outs, Steph. What have we had this week? Yeah, we've we've had quite a few, um, and uh, I think you know we we did get a lot of um, positive responses about the the breaking two um, project for sure, which um, is great. We really enjoyed it, and we're glad that um, our listeners did too. So on Instagram, social media, um, yeah, Greta uh, said, "Wow, what an amazing um, podcast! Some really special content in there." Um, our one of our favourite people, Dr. Alice McNamara. Congrats on 50th episode. It was awesome. Um, and then emails, um, yeah, had um, Ben, who we've spoken about in when um, we spoke about uh, sweat testing. Um, he's loving the podcast. Um, and then two other, um, Narelle and Brenda, both been really enjoying the podcast and getting a lot out of it. Uh, Lionel, um, uh, thought it, it was a, a brilliant episode as well. And then through Twitter, um, we've had um, some mentions and retweets. Um, so Endurance at England Athletics gave us a mention. So thank you very much for that. Rowan um, mentioned a, a cracker to add to your list. Thank you very much for that, Rowan. Um, we've had some mentions by Beat It Sport and uh, the journal um, Sports Medicine. So, um, mm. yeah, really, really lucky. Yeah, so Beat It Sport, probably not surprisingly, because we had Andy <laughs> Beetroot um, as our, our guest last week. And, and obviously we talked about beetroot juice and nitrates and, and how they were used in the, the Breaking 2 project. So, yeah, not a surprise there. Um and just to add to that, Steph, we've also been busy on another podcast um, recorded just last week. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so we were um, yeah lucky enough to to go on to the Inside Running podcast um, with um, I mean one of the the guys on there is Julian Spence, who we again have been lucky enough to have on our podcast and. Um, uh, been able to do some work with him when he ran over in the Doha World Champs. Um, so we sat down with um, Julian and um, he, he gave us some of his listener um, questions. So people from the Inside Running podcast um, gave him some questions from just anything kind of nutrition related really. Uh, and um, Jules is uh, pretty good. He likes to kind of like just throw out a topic and get us to, to um, you know, just go straight into it. And he doesn't like um, starting with it depends. Uh, so he got quite specific, which was good fun. Uh, and and I reckon mm. we did a pretty good job out. Yeah, yeah, no, I think we, we did all yeah. right. Yep. So I think that one's out later this week. For I, I think maybe for, for the patrons of that podcast, it's already available. For, for everyone else, it's uh, available. I think they normally come out Thursdays as well, Inside Running. So it might be this same day that this one comes out. Mm, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. we have to thank Jules um, because he did help structure and, and, you know, give us kind of some good feedback for how we lay out our podcast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I think it's a third time that we've been on, on Inside Running. So it's been always fun to catch up with either Jules or, or Brady. Yeah. Yep. Cool. And um, yeah, if you've got a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, feel free to hit us up on social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. 
uh, very happy to to hear your feedback. Now we're going to actually do, oh, we might mention this at the end actually, Steph, in terms of um, some feedback we're specifically seeking um, that we're going to do a bit of polling through social media um, over the next week or so. Um, but of course, you can listen to this on all of the, the main podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, um, Podbean. Um, and if you'd like to, to leave a, a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, we'd certainly really appreciate that as well. Yep. Today's episode now is? Yeah, so as we said before, it's the one-year anniversary podcast, so really just doing a bit of a recap of the previous 24 questions that we answered, uh, particularly to, to bring people up to speed if they're new listeners or just to, to recap if you uh, don't want to go back and listen to an old episode or you've forgotten and you want a two- or three-minute summary rather than a one-hour-plus summary of that particular topic, this is the place to come. All right, let's do it. I've got an inkling that you are going to kick my butt on this one. Um, <laughs> it's not a competition. I know, but I'm just going to say that I'm going to win the longest ramble and, right. and then you can also be a winner, Alan, and you can win like the nice, succinct conclusion. Okay. All right, everyone's a winner. <laughs> All right, let's do it. So we'll start off with you and we're going to um, get you doing the first five episodes. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. I am ready. Okay. So episode one is low carb right for me. Yeah. So episode one, obviously our very first one, the A episode was Professor Louise Burke from Australian Catholic University, previously with the Australian Institute of Sport. Uh, and also our B episode was race walker and Olympic bronze medalist Evan Dunphy, who uh, was involved with the, the supernova study looking at low carb diets in elite race walkers. I guess the summary from that one is if you're – uh, trying to do competitive racing uh, of an event where a competitive time is up to about four hours duration or you've got significant efforts that are above or around threshold in either your training or racing, then low carb is probably not right for you because it's going to compromise those sorts of efforts. Uh, the main reason for that is that you can't produce as much energy for the same amount of oxygen when you're exclusively using fat or using primarily fat compared to carbohydrate. Now, if it's an ultra-distance event and you're trying to maximise performance, it's not really clear. We don't have enough research in that. It's just so difficult to, to research. You know, um, you can't do a lab study of 12 or 15 hours of competitive running. Um, if you're someone who does recreational ultra events, uh, you're doing it just to, to finish and enjoy it, or you're doing a charity event or something like that, then maybe low-carb would work for you. Um, I guess then we need to think about also the lifestyle and the foods that you're going to be eating lots of or not at all um, and whether that's right for you in terms of your own personal preferences around um, food and eating and fitting in with your family and all those other things in your life that go beyond just physiology and competition. And then the final caveat, we need to protect our gut during training and races uh, and if we're not feeding anything, which a lot of people deliberately go low carb to avoid having to eat anything during um, training or races, uh, we actually restrict potentially blood flow to the gut, which can cause some damage there and some not good things to happen, which we'll get to a little bit later on. Awesome. Good job. All right. Episode two, what should I eat for my long training session? Yeah. So we had Dr. Sam Impey from Team Bike Exchange, the professional cycling team, and also Emma Jeffcoat, who's an Olympian um, from the Australian Olympic team in triathlon. So we talked about long training sessions. I guess the first thing is that sometimes we might deliberately go into those sessions 
eating less carbohydrate or sort of underfueling those training sessions, both before and during. Uh, the idea being that we're trying to increase our body's utilization of fat or uh, improve the body's ability to use fat. Um, and that occurs when the session is completed with low glycogen, so low carbohydrate stores in our muscles when we finish exercise. Now, bear in mind, if you're doing a really long session, then you could start fairly well um, fueled with carbohydrate and still end up low and still get that adaptation. So you don't necessarily have to go super low or fast going into the training to get that adaptation if you're doing a really long session. Um, I guess the, the main thing and, and what we talked about with Sam is to think about the purpose of the training session. So um, obviously the purpose of what you want to get out of that session dictates what that session is. You know, how long is it, the intensity, are you doing intervals, all these sorts of things. And all of those things are going to then dictate the fuel requirements. So if you need to put out lots of high intensity efforts during a training session, well, they are going to be carbohydrate dependent. So if you go in under fueled for that, you're not going to hit those goals for that particular session, no matter what the sort of post-exercise adaptation is. Uh, so if the session requires quality efforts near or above threshold, then you really need to fuel up with carbohydrate leading into the session and probably during as well. Um, now that can be the night before for those of you who train very early in the morning because the carbohydrate you eat for dinner the night before, the vast majority of that gets stored into your muscle and stays there until the next morning when you go out training. Um, if it is an, an easy session, like a recovery run or ride or something like that the next day, um, or just a really low intensity session, then yeah, you can go in fasted or with what we call low carbohydrate availability, and it's not going to compromise what you get out of the session, uh, and it may help with the adaptations afterwards. And then the final thing I'd say here is we don't want to go in chronically underfueling our training all the time, because that has both health and performance consequences, which again, we'll get to in a, a later topic. Episode three, do I need to plan my fluids for a race or just drink to thirst? Yeah, so our first episode on this topic was with Dr. Lewis James from Loughborough University, who's done some really amazing research in hydration and some blinded hydration studies to, to tease out whether there's a, a placebo effect in knowing whether you have fluid or not. Uh, and we also had Julian Spence, who's a, a marathon runner who competed for Australia in the, the World Championships in Doha in 2019 in really obviously hot, challenging conditions. So obviously hypohydration or dehydration, as some people would think of it, can certainly reduce performance during exercise, although exactly how much um, and when and, and what types of exercise are, are negatively affected by dehydration is still not completely understood um, because of the types of research studies that we have uh, and some of the research studies that are just very difficult to do. Um, I think regardless of that though, having an idea of what your likely sweat losses are is going to be helpful regardless of whether you drink to a rigid plan or you choose to drink to thirst because you need to ensure you've got enough fluid available to you. You know, you could be thirsty, but if there's no fluid around, well, you can't drink to thirst. So um, it's still important to know what your likely sweat losses are going to be um, from a planning point of view, even if you're using thirst as a guide of, of how much to drink during the event. Now, obviously, conditions change from, from day to day or even within the same day, particularly for longer training sessions or races, you know, an Ironman or an Ultra or something like that. You know, the conditions at the start of the day can be completely different to the end of the day. So your sweat rate's never going to be exactly the same as it was on the day that you tested it in training, and it's never going to be the same hour to hour over the duration of a, a long training session or a race. So drinking to a fixed plan can certainly result in significant over or under hydration, depending on the day, uh, and both of those can have negative consequences. 
That said, drinking to thirst without having any plan of how much fluid you need available to you, how you're going to access that fluid is potentially fraught um, in terms of being either quite underhydrated um, and occasionally some people, quote unquote, drinking to thirst have ended up quite overhydrated and ended up with exercise associated hyponatremia. Um, I, I guess in a long event like that, thirst really is our only guide or our dipstick, if you like, to give us some sort of feedback of where we're at in terms of our hydration. If we go in blindly drinking a certain mils per hour after five or 10 hours of, of racing, it's hard to know, you know, if you're 100 or 200 mils an hour out after 10 hours, that could add up to, you know, a litre or two in either direction. So uh, ultimately, I think thirst needs to um, have something to do with it. Um, but we need to ensure that we've got enough fluid to drink to thirst and know that our thirst is appropriate and is going to get us roughly to where we need to be. So a bit of testing beforehand, I think, is still important regardless. So episode number four, why do I sweat so much more than that guy? Yeah, so we had Professor Ollie Jay from the University of Sydney, who's a thermal physiologist. So he studies all these little doodads and, and mechanisms of how our body works to, to regulate its temperature. Uh, and essentially we learned from Ollie that the um, sweat rate that a lot of people think is either random or genetic or something like that is actually very physiologically regulated. Uh, and it's all about what we call the evaporative requirement for heat balance. So basically when we exercise, our body's producing a certain amount of heat. Um, and that depends on you know how hard we're exercising, how big our body is as well, um, how much weight we've got to move, etc. Um, and we lose some of that heat through what we call direct losses. So losses directly from the skin through what we call convection uh, or conduction if it's in water, for example, um, or, or even um, radiation loss, although that can be heat gain from radiation from the sun if it's a sunny day as well. Um, but if that's insufficient to get rid of all the heat that we're producing during exercise, which it usually is, then we're going to need to get rid of heat in another way, and that's to evaporate um, water from the surface of our skin. And the, the more heat we need to get rid of, the more evaporation we're going to need, and so therefore the more sweat we're going to produce. Um, and so the sweat that we do produce during exercise is very closely regulated to, to match the requirements that we need to get rid of that excess body heat up to a maximal rate. So we kind of have a, a ceiling of how much we can sweat during exercise, although like everything else in the body, that's trainable and can be improved. And that's why we do things like heat acclimation or acclimatization. Um, now, the final thing I'd say on this is that the completeness of evaporation of sweat is important here. So if you're wearing lots of clothes that trap the sweat so it can't evaporate off the skin surface, then that's not particularly helpful. Um, equipment and things as well, Things like bike helmets will have a, a bit of an impact on that and, and other clothing and equipment that you might be having. Uh, things like airflow, so on a bike where you're moving faster through the air, you're going to get more efficient evaporation than running where it's a bit slower. Um, things like the humidity, so the more humid it is, the less efficient that evaporation is from the skin surface. So all of those things can then also affect the, the amount of sweat that you're producing in an attempt to, to balance that heat gain from your body with heat loss to the environment. And episode five, how do I cope with training in the heat? Yeah, so we were lucky enough to have Ollie J again. He was very generous with his time. We actually spoke for, for quite a length of time and ended up splitting that conversation into two parts, one around the sweating side of things and one around the heat side of things. So I guess the main thing to prepare for training and racing in hot environments is to think about firstly, what sort of heat are we talking about? Is it dry heat, so the humidity is low? or is it going to be very humid heat? 
So in dry heat, the focus is going to be around enhancing the evaporation of water or sweat from the body. Um, whereas in a humid environment, that's far less effective. So we need to think about some other techniques that we can do to try and keep us a bit cooler. So I guess the first thing, regardless of whether it's gonna be hot uh, and dry or hot and humid, is the number one strategy for preparing for exercise in a hot environment is the process of heat acclimation. So this is where you're deliberately exercising in a hot environment on consecutive days, um, and you're deliberately trying to get your core temperature up, um, probably at least eight, uh, 38 and a half, probably 39 is, is preferable. Um, and it's, it's you know that heat is gonna stimulate your body to adapt like it does to any other kind of training stress. Uh, and in this case, it's gonna adapt in ways that are helpful for exercising in hot environments. So that's uh, you're talking about a minimum of five consecutive days, preferably 10 or possibly even as much as 14 if you wanna get the full adaptation. And what you're gonna see is your resting heart rate will be lower. And the reason it's lower is because your blood volume will expand. Um, so you have a lower resting heart rate, you have greater blood volume and more total body water. So you've essentially got more water to lose through sweating. Um, you're gonna have a, a lower resting core temperature as well. And your um, sweat response will kick in earlier or at a lower body temperature. So as you start exercising, um, you'll start sweating earlier um, and you also improve the maximum sweat rate that you can achieve. So you can uh, have a greater ability to evaporate that sweat and, and lower your body temperature. So all those adaptations are beneficial. In terms of that dry heat, um, as I said, maximizing evaporation is the key here. So we just mentioned before, you know, the things that affect sweat rate. So I won't go over those again. Uh, the other thing that Ollie did mention though, is that, you know, the evaporation is of any water on your skin surface. It doesn't matter whether that water comes from your sweat or it's water you pour over yourself, the evaporative process is the same. And anyone who's gotten out of a shower will, will know this. Um, so don't be afraid to pour water over yourself. As we talked about in the episode, it's essentially free sweat um, because the evaporative process to remove heat from the body is exactly the same as when it um, comes from your sweat glands. The temperature of that water actually doesn't matter either. Evaporation is evaporation in terms of the amount of heat energy that you lose. So if you don't have access to really cold fluids, yes, they'll feel nicer, but they actually aren't any more efficient at um, reducing your body temperature. Now, if you're in a very humid environment, now we need to focus on non-evaporative ways of cooling us down. So some of this might include things like uh, ice vests before exercise, um, or things like ice slushies um, can lower our body temperature. So we start with a lower body temperature, certainly in a humid environment where uh, evaporation is limited, then that may be a helpful strategy as well. And we're gonna do another upcoming episode getting into sort of cooling and use of slushies and things in a little bit more detail. The other thing that sometimes people might do in a humid environment, they know they're gonna be sweating a lot, particularly if access to fluid is a little bit limited, is what we call hyperhydration before exercise. So this is deliberately consuming water with something like glycerol or sodium to deliberately increase blood volume and, and the total amount of water in your body before you start exercising. So therefore you can afford to cop a bigger fluid deficit um, before it starts to affect uh, your health or performance. But again, we didn't go into a lot of detail about that in this episode, but we've got an upcoming one where we will be discussing this a bit more. Well done, good job. Ooh. All right, so episode number six, your turn Steph to summarize. Ooh. Episode six, why is nutrition so confusing? Good question, Al. So we were lucky enough to have Dr. Tim Crow, 
and he he's formerly worked at Deakin University for for a significant number of years but now he's focusing on podcast and media communications and we were lucky enough to have Chris Ord who actually organizes a lot of trail events uh, in Australia and I think even potentially overseas and he's a trail runner himself. So as Tim says, nutrition is about eating. And as we know, humans are quite complicated and diverse creatures. So there's a a wide variety of conflicting nutrition information out there and completely understandable why, you know, we get confused. So nutrition is one of the few fields that I guess we can all kind of be considered experts just if we talk about it. And for example, you know, you can be considered an expert if you lose weight because everyone then, you know, goes to you and is like, well, well, how did you lose that weight? It kind of resonates with people. And even though the process of how you achieve that may not necessarily be the most appropriate, I bet you that there's going to be a lot of people kind of asking for your advice. So the science that informs what role nutrition has on X can come from a range of studies with different levels of quality. So we kind of go from kind of low quality sort of observational studies um, to the higher quality studies like randomised control trials. Running high quality studies um, takes a lot of time and effort. It's tedious and we need to recruit a large number of participants. So therefore, studies actually come with um, biases, confounders, and and there's always going to be flaws in, in, you know, many, many studies. Um, And um, people kind of, they they all have their own unique way of responding as well and their own unique physiology. So um, there's always what we often talk of in all of our episodes is individual variation. Then there's also vested interests in studies where it can be funded by a particular industry. Um, and so it's not always the case that if a, if a study is funded by industry that it's going to be biased, but you do need to look into that um, a bit more um, so that's also why we can get confused about, about nutrition. So how can we overcome this nutrition confusion? I guess there's no easy answer, but what we'd encourage you to do is become an inquisitive investigator so that you can become an informed consumer. So start asking critical questions on the topic that you're interested in. If you're looking and you're doing Google and you're finding some articles, ask the question about, okay, well, does the writer have qualifications and what are the types of qualifications that they have? Is the study funded by industry? Um, And, you know, does that mean that it may have some bias towards it? Um, And then are there references to good quality studies? And then also ask the question, are quick results or miracles promised? Because, you know, often if we we see that, that's kind of um, a red flag. There should be a number of studies. You shouldn't just have this um, statement and you only see one reference. And then also just question if what you're looking at is really just backed up by a lot of testimonials and celebrities um, talking about the product. It, there's no real simple answer to things. So if something, you know, sounds too too simple and there's a simple answer, um, again, I'd start questioning it, questioning it because, you know, topics are often quite quite complex. Awesome. Complex answer to a complex question, I think. Um 
episode seven. Why do I get gut issues during exercise? Uh, so we had the lovely Steph Gaskell there, Alan, mm. <laughs> uh, and we were lucky enough to have um, Aniko Lanos, uh, who's a pro professional long course triathlete. He attended our lab at Monash University. So unfortunately, there's no real easy answer as to why we get gastrointestinal symptoms during exercise. There's a number of factors that can influence why we get symptoms during exercise. There's no one size fits all, unfortunately. There, there seems to be three kind of main causal pathways. When we exercise, we're going to get blood flow more going to the muscles and less going towards the gut. So we call that the circulatory gastrointestinal pathway. And then there's a neuroendocrine response. So again, when we exercise, um, that's kind of like quite a stressful response. So we get an increase in um, stress hormones and an increase in what we call our sympathetic nervous system, which when that's switched on, our gut actually doesn't digest and absorb as well. And then we also have a mechanical strain. So again, depending on the type of exercise that we're doing, let's say running, for example, we can get a lot of sort of jolting and jarring on the digestive system. So there's kind of three possible causal pathways of why we may get um, gastrointestinal symptoms. Therefore, there's kind of no easy answer. We'd ideally recommend, you know, that we can do a sort of an individualized assessment on that person getting the, the symptoms. And there's a range of factors that can kind of exasperate why um, people are getting symptoms. So we need to consider for the person that presents with us with gut symptoms, what's the exercise that they're doing? What's the length of exercise that they're doing? What's the intensity? And then what's the environmental conditions? What's the temperature, the humidity, the altitude? And then also when are the exercising day versus night, for example, can have an influence, any medications or supplements that they're taking. And then also, um, you know, what's the hydration status? What's the dietary intake leading up to the event, during the event? And is there any predisposition? Do they have any gastrointestinal disorders? All right. Episode number eight, do I need iron supplements? So we had Associate Professor Pete Peeling um, from the University of Western Australia and also works at uh, WACE. And we had elite marathon runner Ellie Pashley who recently competed in the Olympics. So I guess as many of us will know, iron plays a, a really important role in the body and it's really important to athletes mainly for its key role in, in transporting oxygen um, and in energy metabolism. It seems that female and endurance um, athletes are often diagnosed with, with iron deficiency. It's not to say that males don't get diagnosed with it as well. And symptoms of, of compromised iron status can include that um, the athlete can feel lethargic, they can feel fatigued, they can be kind of maybe even down, having negative kind of um, mood. And then if it's quite severe, it can impact on the exercise performance. There's different levels of iron deficiency. So, you know, if you are feeling run down, there's lots of reasons why you could be feeling run down. So go and seek medical advice. Uh, and potentially get some bloods and actually find out is it because you do have low iron and then depending on where you sit in terms of your iron status will then influence um, what you need to do and then if you do need a supplement with iron what's the best approach 
obviously, as dietitians, we'll always try and maximise your, your dietary iron intake. But unfortunately, at times, that may not be enough to, to increase it. And so then you may need to either take oral iron supplementation or you may need to consider intravenous iron supplementation, but it's something that you need to talk to with your medical practitioner and work out the best strategy for you. And then just take note, if you're taking oral iron supplementation, that some of them may increase gastrointestinal symptoms, but then there's lots of other options that may not influence that for you. Yep, for sure. All right, episode nine, do I need to carb load for my race? We had um, the lovely Dr. Jose Arita from Liverpool John Moores University. And then we had the cross-country mountain biker, Karen Hill. Do I need a carb load for my race? So if we're doing exercise that's going to be 90 minutes or longer and it's going to be moderate to hard intensity, then I would say, yes, you you should consider carbohydrate loading. And the reason that I say that is because we know that when you're exercising, the harder that we exercise, and it's usually at kind of, you know, whenever we're going 70% and above our VO2 max, we're going to be burning through a lot of carbohydrate. And we are going to, if we exercise for longer than 90 minutes, we do tend to see that that's where we're going to start to deplete our, our um, muscle carbohydrate stores that we start with. So if we don't carbohydrate load and we don't fuel during exercise and we're exercising quite hard, what will tend to happen that around that 90 minute mark, depending on people's fitness level, your your pace will start to dial down because you've just used up your your carbohydrate stores. So yes, I would carbohydrate load because we know that what carbohydrate loading actually means is that 24 hours to 36 hours before whatever event I'm doing, if I eat foods that are high in carbohydrate, I can I can almost double the amount of carbohydrate um, that my muscles can store. So what it means is that then I'll start the event with um, double the amount of carbohydrate that I would normally have at rest. And what that will do is then I'll be able to prolong my exercise intensity. If I'm exercising and it's at lower intensity, so more like your ultra-endurance events, so it might be 100K, even 50K or so. Um, I guess we don't have a lot of research in this particular area, as we know in lots of work that we're doing. It is very hard to, to research in the ultra-endurance space because it's hard to get participants in exercising for five hours or more. But we would, I would um, say from the current research and just thinking about what happens in ultra-endurance exercise, you still have your surges. There's times, let's say in a 100K race right at the start, you'll be surging to try and get at the front. You'll be surging up hills. You might even be surging down hills. So we would suggest that it would still be of, of benefit. So yes, um, I would carbo-load if you're doing an event from 90 minutes and more and it's going to be moderate to, to hard intensity if you're just a recreational runner you don't care too much about the pace you're doing it for fun 
or you're doing it for health reasons, well then, no, you're probably going to get more performance benefits from focusing on your training and other things than carbohydrate loading. So it really does depend on what your goals are and then what is the fitness status of you and then also how you respond. So we always want to test that out in training. Yep. Yep. Well said. Okay. Episode 10. Do I need a sweat test? Do I need a sweat test? It's a good question. Well, I attempted to answer this one in the A episode. And then we had Ben Duffus, who's an ultra runner, um, winner of the six foot track marathon this year um, as our athlete guest. So we talked about the fact that um, from a sweat test point of view, you can test sweat rate, which we alluded to in an earlier episode about looking at fluid losses. But then what we're talking about here is more the sweat sodium concentration testing. So actually looking at how much sodium we're losing in sweat. So we do lose other electrolytes, magnesium, calcium, uh, potassium, and so on. But the amounts of those that you lose is really very low. Um, and it's, it's mainly the sodium that we're worried about. Now, the first thing to realize with sweat testing is we do have about a 10% day-to-day variation in sweat rate. Um, just on any two given days, your sweat rate can vary up to 10% in identical conditions. For sweat sodium, uh, we don't have as much data, but it looks like it's probably at least 15%. Um, so I guess the first thing here is that you know you do you might do a sweat test, but the number isn't a hard and fast number that you can stick a pole in the sand and say this is my number because it will vary from from day to day. So it's more a ballpark to say am I at the higher end of normal, the lower end of normal, or, or somewhere in the middle. Um, in terms of why you're doing a sweat test, I guess that's the, the key thing to think about here in, in terms of, you know, do I need a sweat test? Well, why? What are you trying to get out of it? What is the information going to, to help you with? What will you do with those results? For events that are less than three hours, it's probably unlikely that you're ever going to need a sweat test. There's not really any benefit to be had from sweat testing for any event where the, the finish time is less than three hours. Um, where there may be a use for sweat testing is in ultra endurance events. Um, because the turnover of sweat, so both water and sodium, is going to be much, much higher over a very long period of time. Um, even though the, the hourly loss rate will probably be lower because you're sweating less, uh, it just adds up to a total amount that's much, much greater. So for those longer events, um, it may be relevant to do a sweat test if you, you perceive there's a particular problem. But if you don't perceive there's a problem, you know, don't rush out to do it as a, a thing that you think you have to do. And the final thing I'd say on this is we're still actually yet to determine what the best way to replace sodium is during exercise. We don't have any hard and fast guidelines. So you get a sweat test, you get a result. What does it mean? Well, there's currently no scientific guideline to answer that question. Uh, it's something that I'm doing some research on at the moment. And what I would say is it's probably almost definitely related to fluid turnover. Um, so it's not just about how much sodium you lose in terms of milligrams per hour, which is how it's been traditionally presented, but your sodium need to replace is also related to how much fluid you're then replacing during exercise. Um, but again, we don't have a hard and fast number on that, um, but we might cover some of that research that I'm doing at the moment next year once I've finished it. Um, and we can go into that a bit more detail in a future episode. Uh, and episode 11, can I have a beer after training or a race? Yeah, so we had associate professor, although I just heard the other day he's now a full professor, Ben Desbro from Griffith University up on the Gold Coast, uh, and also pro triathlete Nathan Shearer. So as Ben said, he's been doing some research into sort of post-exercise rehydration um, in a whole lot of different beverages, but including beer. 
Um, so can I have a beer after training or a race? Yes. Uh, you could probably even have two or three potentially. Um, lower alcohol beers are generally going to be better because the, the higher the alcohol concentration, the more likely you are to have what we call diuresis. So where basically your kidneys flush out excess water or not even excess water, just water that should be retained and you're going to become um, dehydrated, you're going to lose fluid. But for lower alcohol beers, uh, light beers, alcohol-free beers is absolutely fine. Uh, having food alongside the beer will increase the fluid retention because of all the, the nutrients in the food will help retain that fluid in the body as well. Um, so the, really the only thing here is having excessive amount of alcohol, having very high strength alcohols, so, you know, maybe your Belgian beers and you know, eight, 10%, something like that. Um, or if you've um, had a, a, an injury or something like that and, and you're worried about sort of inflammatory response and, and poor recovery, then you might um, think about dialing that back a little bit or just about having too many beers and then risking injuring yourself by doing something silly because you've had too many beers. Episode 12, how do I tackle my first ultra? Yeah, so this was a, a four-prong episode. It's the only one we've ever had parts A, B, C, and D. So, Steph, you and I did part A, um, and then we had three athlete guests from three different sports. So we had ultra runner Kelly Emerson, we had 24-hour mountain biker Kate Penglaze, and we had Ironman age group world champion Kevin Ferguson. So I guess the key take-homes from this one in terms of tackling your first ultra-distance event is firstly to plan ahead preferably at least six months out from the event. And the reason for that is that there's going to be a lot of things that you need to learn the hard way, experiment within training, uh, find out things, bring it back, reflect on it, make changes and go out and try it again and try it again until you refine your strategy. So don't expect to just rock up you know, on race day and doing something that you've never tried before and, and hoping that it's going to work out because it's highly likely that it could go pear-shaped. So during that six months, really experiment to find out your preferred brands and products that you're going to consume. If this is your first ultra distance event, you're probably going to be having a lot more drinks and gels and bars and things than you've ever had to have before. Um, and that can introduce things, what we call flavor fatigue, where you just get sick of sweet things all the time. Um, or you just might find that things that you, you enjoy the, the taste and the flavor of um, in shorter events or in training, all of a sudden become really disgusting and, and onerous in longer distance events. Come up with a plan during that time. As I said, practice it, revise it, practice it again uh, and improve on it. Work out if there's any other issues you need to overcome. If you've got some gut tolerance issues, um, then that might be something that you're going to have to specifically go out and train repeatedly to improve your gut tolerance of whether it's you know uh, food or, or fluids uh, or any other issues that you might be encountering. Some of the things to think about in ultra distance events that you might not have had to think about before is contrasting weather. So, you know, very cold in the morning when you start, very hot in the middle of the day, very cold overnight again. Um, differences between day and night as well and what that might mean in terms of um, the choices of solids versus liquids, but also things like caffeine. Uh, and also, as you said, Steph, you know, gut issues can tend to be exacerbated at nighttime as well. So maybe keeping things a bit simpler um, during the, the nighttime hours uh, and that balance between sweet and savoury flavours becomes really important. 
I guess one of the things that we heard from from all three athletes was the need to be flexible with your nutrition. Um, you know, you might go into a race thinking this is going to be my plan. I've tried it in training; it's going to be great. But eight hours in, you know, that could completely unravel, and you know what you thought was going to work really well turns out not to work really well. So having multiple options, having Plan B, having Plan C, being able to change things on the fly if you need to. Uh, and also, I guess the other thing that really came across from, from all three athletes was the fact that what worked for them in one race wouldn't necessarily be the best thing in the next race. And, you know, um, your your gut tolerance changes over time, your, your personal preferences change over time. And so your nutrition plan has to evolve from, from race to race as well. So don't just think, oh, I've, I've nailed it on the first go and so I can just cut and copy that for every single race moving forward you may need to to make adjustments for each one uh, and also the fact that all, all three of them mentioned that you're probably not likely to get it right on the first go and you know don't be too hard on yourself about that that's just part of the learning experience of doing your first ultra whether it's you know finding out you're going to get blisters because the shoes don't work over that distance or whether it's nutrition related these are all things that you you just learn from experience uh, and then the final thing i guess if you're in doubt about any of these things um don't don't be afraid to go and seek professional help. Episode 13, how do I plan for a supported multi-stage event? Yeah, so we had uh, a guest, James Moran, who is a dietitian who works with the Ineos Grenadiers Pro Cycling Team and also Team Uno X, uh, which is a Norwegian uh, pro-continental team, although I believe they're stepping up to the World Tour for next year. Um, so James worked with, with Ineos Grenadiers at the Tour de France this year uh, and obviously a whole bunch of other races. And then we had Leah Kirchman, who's a, a pro cyclist with Team DSM um, and also competed at the Olympics this year as well. So I guess for multi-day events, I guess the day-to-day the -day nutritional needs are, are kind of similar to single-day events, you know, in terms of fueling, preparing for the stage, uh, what you're having during the stage, but I guess you always, always got one eye or, or, or one thought about what's coming the next day. Um, and therefore, you know, what you're doing today isn't just affecting today, it's affecting tomorrow and the next day and so forth. So there is this added challenge of recovery between days when there's a short turnaround, and that can be further complicated in the sort of the post-stage period when you, you finish your, your stage uh, on any given day, you know, for the pros, it can mean things like media commitments, um, drug testing, and so on, that can take them away from accessing the nutrition that they might have planned. Um, for for non professionals, it might be things like you know doing repairs to your bike, cleaning up, organising accommodation if it's a new location or, or something like that that you weren't in on the previous day. Um, so there can be all sorts of logistical things that I guess get in the way or, or make it a little bit tricky. In terms of that recovery piece, we've got a, um, a topic coming up very shortly around recovery specifically, but thinking about protein in terms of how that's going to help you recover from day to day, um, thinking about aggressive refueling of carbohydrate. Usually even a multi-stage race, you've got less than 24 hours from when you finish today's stage to when you start tomorrow's stage. So if we think about you know the carb loading that you mentioned before, Steph, you might want to get that amount of carbohydrate in, but you've got less than 24 hours to do it. So you're going to have to be fairly well-planned and, and organized and quite aggressive with that carbohydrate intake to, to refuel. Um, other things to consider, I guess, if it's over several days or even weeks, sometimes charity events might go over a very long period of time or someone's running around Australia or something like that, for example, you need to think about, you know, this food is not just your, 
your performance nutrition, it's your day-to-day nutrition for health. And so then you need to start to consider things like, am I getting enough fiber in my diet and vitamins and minerals and those sorts of things? So general diet quality and, and adequacy comes into this as well. Flavor fatigue, uh, or as James described, texture fatigue as well with the, the pro cyclists. We mentioned that before in terms of a one-off ultra event, but that can also accumulate over several days or weeks as well, where the food that you enjoyed on the first couple of days by the third, fourth, fifth, sixth day, you really don't want anything to do with that, particularly during a stage, uh, but it can be in the, the pre and post stage period as well. So think about variety of foods, ensuring you've got foods that you, you enjoy as well. Uh, James mentioned the fact that sometimes you can actually overfuel. There can be days where stages are, are less um, less intense uh, and therefore or, sh- or shorter, and, and therefore you there is a risk of overfueling at some stages, and people can actually gain weight at times. But of course, the opposite is true, and you know if you're underfueling for consecutive days, that can that can be a big problem as well. I guess just a couple of things from a logistical point of view, you need to think about your accommodation and access to food uh, in a stage race situation. So uh, if you're traveling with a team, then obviously they're probably organizing that for you. But if you're, you're doing things by yourself, you need to think about you know the accommodation. Have I got adequate kitchen facilities to prepare everything that I need? Is there access to a supermarket to buy the food that I need? Or do I need to be organized and bring that with me? So a rice cooker can come really in handy in some of these. If you're staying in a hotel without you know, kitchen facilities, um, you know, you can use rice cooker, not just for rice, but a whole bunch of different things that can be be really handy as well. Well said. Okay, so episode 14, this is the recovery piece that I just mentioned before. What do I need to eat and drink after training? So we were joined by Dr. Isabella Russo, formerly uh, Monash University um, student. So she completed her PhD there and now she's over working in the sports dietetics world in the UK. And we were joined with the athlete Richard Bowles, uh, adventure runner um, who's done a lot of extraordinary things. Um, so really, I guess, what do I need to eat and drink after training comes down to what the actual session was and how, how much did it actually, you know, deplete you and what are your goals of the session, which, you know, we've talked about previously. In terms of, you know, how much do I need to get, it's going to depend on how depleted that exercise session has been. But let's say again that we want to be really proactive with it. Then sort of we're looking at with carbohydrate, it may be anywhere from kind of one and a one to 1.2 grams per kilo of body mass, which if we're a 60 kilo athlete, that's roughly 60 grams of, um, of carbohydrate. Um, which I could get in, you know, kind of like two sandwiches as an example or two large wraps. It could be like a large fruit smoothie that ha- yeah, has banana, milk and yogurt in there. When we're looking at protein, how much? Roughly that's about 0.3 to 0.4 grams per kilo of our body mass. So roughly that may be around the 20 to 30 grams of protein. And what that looks like in terms of food can be as simple as your palm size of meat or chicken or 500 mils of milk or a couple of tubs of of yogurt. Or now we've got the high protein yogurts out there. So it may be one and a half of those. If you're a vegetarian or vegan and you don't have animal-based sources, then it's more so looking at things like your legumes, lentil, tofu, tempeh, and maybe combining some of those sources to to get the protein and a little bit higher with protein as we've spoken about or will be speaking about from the plant-based episode. 
And then in terms of fluid, like how much should we replace post, generally we say maybe towards 150% of what we've lost over the next four hours or so. And as Alan's already mentioned, you know, when we consume fluid, if we have it with food, the food will help maximise our, our fluid retention. Yep, absolutely. All right, we're up to episode 15. How do I plan for a self-sufficient multi-stage race? Yeah, so obviously self-sufficient race, a little bit different to, your, I guess, your traditional um, ultra events where you might have aid stations and things like that. Um, we had a couple of people that call themselves experts called Steph and Alan. I don't know who they are, but uh, apparently they're, they're meant to know what they're doing. Um, and we also had in our B episode, Jodie Moss, who's a sports scientist, uh, recently finished her PhD. Um, and she's also competed at Marathon de Saab, which is one of those self-sufficient ultra marathon events. So if we're thinking about these self-sufficient events, uh, there's different rules for different types of events, but the most common ones are the ultra marathons where you have to carry all your food with you for the duration, which can be anything from sort of five to eight days typically. Um, water is usually provided along the way, although you have to have some way of carrying it with you from checkpoint to checkpoint. Um, but the main thing is you've got to bring all the food with you. So this is really a, an exercise in trying to maximise the nutrition and minimise the weight of the food that you're carrying. Um, it's what we call energy density. So how many calories or kilojoules per 100 grams of food and try to absolutely maximise that. So there's a few different ways you can do that. I guess the first thing to think about is any um, moisture or water content in food that you're carrying around is extra weight that you have to carry around when you're being provided with water. So the first thing you would generally go for is, is dehydrated meals because you can then obtain water at checkpoints to rehydrate those. And so you're reducing down the weight that you have to carry by using dehydrated foods. Um, but also thinking about some of the other options beyond just the, the main meals that might be the packaged dehydrated foods, but the other snacks and things that you take with you. If there's extra water weight in those, then that's not going to be particularly helpful. The next thing to think about is um, in terms of energy density is that the type of macronutrients that you're having. So, you know, carbohydrate, protein, and fat. Now, obviously, um, you know, there's going to be important to have a mixture of those carbohydrate in terms of performance, protein in terms of recovery in particular. Um, but the reality is fat gives you the most calories per gram. It's the most energy dense. So don't be afraid to go with higher fat options here um, because that might be helpful in terms of getting more calories out of a smaller uh, volume and, and weight of food. And so, for example, a lot of the sort of the protein snacks that people might take, both from a food safety point of view, but also from a um, energy density point of view might be things like salami sticks and beef jerky and those kind of things. So they might have quite a high fat content, but in this context, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, and those foods will also hold up to extremes of temperatures and things as well, which you can often get with these events if they're out in the desert or, you know, there is a there has been a, a self-sufficient multi-stage race in Antarctica as, the, I guess, the, the opposite of that. One of the, the biggest questions, I guess, that people have for these kind of events is, is it better to have more nutrition but have to carry more weight on my back? Or is it better to have the lightest pack possible but compromise my nutrition? Uh, and that's generally the approach that most people take. Most people are completely weight obsessed and they'll go for the lightest possible pack. Now, most of these events have a rule around what's the minimum number of calories you have to take with you and that kind of dictates how low you can go. Um, but we've done a, a case study actually with, with Richard Bowles, who, who we mentioned earlier. Um, he was our, our case study participant where he actually ran a simulated multi-stage ultra uh, in the lab at Monash. Um, this was quite some time ago now, about six years ago, 
where he had a backpack that simulated the weight of that. Um, and then we fed him either you know 100% of what he needed, which was a huge amount of food, um, or 50% of what he needed, which is more similar to what most people have during these events or what they take with them. And what we found is that uh, both physically and psychologically, he was much better off with the full provision. But because it was so much food, he actually struggled from a gastrointestinal tolerance point of view. So we think the compromise might be somewhere in the middle. But the reality is it's probably more than what most people tend to take with them on these events. So uh, I guess the lesson from that, I mean, it is only a case study, it's an N of one, um, is that certainly for Richard, he would have been better off carrying more, even though he had more weight on his back. Uh, and I guess the final thing to remember with that is that, yes, you might have a pack that's five kilos heavier on day one. But as that food comes out, the difference between the heavier pack and the lighter pack gets smaller and smaller for each consecutive day. So it might be five kilos difference on day one, four and a half on day two, four on day three, and so on until the difference is only a kilo or so by the end. And you're not going to notice that kilo, but what you are going to notice is that you're not as hungry um, and you're not as fatigued because you've actually got some nutrition into you. Well said. All right. Episode 16. How can my nutrition help my recovery from injury? We were joined with Dr. Rebecca Alcock, who's also, well, she was Latrobe Uni, but formerly Melbourne Football Club and Monash University, and um, with athlete Kate Gifford, who's a, a middle distance runner and also lucky enough to be my flatmate. So the important thing for nutrition for injury is we want to ensure we've got sufficient energy intake to help with the injury recovery process. Um, re our healing process is really energy expensive, so we need to make sure we've got sufficient energy in to help with that process. Often, obviously, when we're injured, our training load will reduce, so we may need to reduce our energy intake a little bit, but don't do that too much, and often athletes can probably be overly cautious with that and probably reduce their energy um, to the detriment of the of their recovery. And then the other things that we want to have a look at is make sure that you're consuming a, a quality diet as well because your energy intake may be cut back a little bit. It's really important that we're still making sure we're getting in all the really important vitamins and minerals and nutrients. So we want to make sure the foods that we're eating are, are really nutrient dense as well. And protein is, is, is really important for the recovery process. It's going to help with your tissue repair. And generally what we want is we're looking at about four to six hits of that in the, in the day. And you're looking at around that possibly 20 to 30 gram hits in um, the four to six times during the day. The other things to consider with, with your nutrition are things like, particularly if it's related to a bone stress injury, having a look at, you know, is your calcium intake sufficient? What's your vitamin D um, status like? And then you may consider anti-inflammatories, but usually that's kind of a little bit after that immediate injury kind of response. And you're looking at particular things like it might be fish oil, it might be curcumin, flavonoids, uh, and um, you can start to introduce those in your diet. And then I guess the other one, the main one that we also wanted to talk to Beck about was in her research was looking at collagen. 
And the advice for that is um, there's lots of different collagen supplements out there. Generally, what you want to look at is the hydrolyzed collagen, just because that's it's more appealing in terms of taste. And uh, it contains important amino acids that we think is important in that injury recovery process. So two of the key amino acids we think are glycine and proline. And the amount that we want to try and get in is about 15 to 20 grams of that and probably two hits of that in the day. And if we're looking at kind of ligament and tendon injuries where there's particularly poor blood supply, a protocol that's usually suggested is that we would consume that collagen about 30 to 60 minutes prior to exercise because that's going to then promote a peak amount of collagen when we've got, you know, a peak level of blood flow in the area. So I guess to answer that, nutrition plays a really important role in your injury recovery and don't don't forget about it, I guess. Yeah. 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 Well said. Okay. Episode 17. What's the deal with cannabidiol or CBD? Yeah. So um, we had Danielle McCartney, uh, who's from the University of um, Sydney's Lambert Initiative, the cannabinoid therapeutics. Uh, I don't know why you gave me this topic, Alan. You just wanted to shit stir me with saying the um, the CBD. <laughs> well, I, I butchered it in that episode, so I thought I'd let you butcher it this time. <laughs> so cannabidiol, which I'm going to now use as CBD, is a non-intoxicating cannabinoid derived from cannabis. Um, and I guess CBD initially drew a lot of interest due to its anti-convulsant properties. However, it's now actually drawing a lot of interest in athletic populations because it has um, potential anti-inflammatory effects, neuroprotective effect. It may help with reducing anxiety um, and it may even help with improving sleep. Also, CBD is no longer prohibited by uh, WADA and it appears to be safe and well tolerated in humans, unlike um, THC, which is a cannabinoid, um, but that we know is intoxicating. Uh, There's unfortunately a lack of research into the direct effects of CBD and sports performance. So a lot of the work that um, we sort of are looking at and that we were talking about with Danielle is drawn from kind of preclinical studies um, and there are a small number of like clinical trials that we drew from as well so it's looking at kind of non-athletic populations and the the studies there uh, have reported that there are anti-inflammatory properties there's neuroprotective properties um, and analgesic effects of CBT and also possibly gastrointestinal health benefits and um, benefits potentially with skeletal muscle injury healing. However, we do need more research in athletic populations and I believe Danielle and some of her colleagues are doing that research um, as we speak. 
there, I think we just need to be careful in this space at, at current. Um, I do know that there's still a lot of concerns about the use of CBD and the potential risk of doping offences just due to potential contamination and the risk of it containing other cannabinoids and, and THC. So it's, you know, it's an ex- exciting space. But as we talked about in this episode, um, there's there's other ways that we can, you know, potentially look at those outcomes from, you know, like how can we improve anti-inflammatory? Well, there's other foods that can help encourage anti-inflammatory properties. Yep. Episode 18, should I be worried about hyponatremia? Yeah, good question. So uh, I did the first part of that episode um, because of my research in sodium. And we had also Dr. Alice McNamara, who is a sports physician, um, sports medicine registrar. Um, She is a trail runner herself, um, but she also works providing medical support at ultra distance events, particularly those in sort of um, rural and remote areas. So firstly, what is hyponatremia? Well, hypo means low, nat means sodium, and emia means blood. So it's low blood sodium concentration. Uh, and that's typically defined as less than 130 millimoles per litre. Um, for most people that develop hyponatremia, it's actually asymptomatic. So they don't have any symptoms uh, and it's relatively harmless. Um, when it does become a problem is generally when the blood sodium is very low or when the drop in blood sodium is very quick, um, and then you might get symptomatic hyponatremia. So it's quite rare, but it is potentially quite dangerous. So what happens with with hyponatremia that becomes symptomatic is um, sodium is the main controller in our body of uh, what we call osmolality in the fluid that exists outside our cells, including in our blood. Uh, And what happens is if the osmolality drops outside of the cells, Um, and it's higher inside the cells, the water is going to move from the low to the high. So you're going to get water moving into our cells. And so if we have too much water moving into the cells, they can swell up. And that's when they cause problems, either in the lungs or particularly in the brain, where you can get some some quite nasty things happening. Uh, And unfortunately, about 14 people have documented to have died from exercise-associated hyponatremia over the years. The main cause of hyponatremia, although you know it's low blood sodium sounds like it's a lack of sodium, it's actually excess fluid. So drinking too much fluid that causes the problem because it dilutes the sodium um, because it's the, the excess fluid going into the cells that ultimately is the, the main problem. Um, yes, it's the balance of fluid and sodium, um, but if you've got too much fluid, the sodium isn't going to help you very much because you've still got too much fluid. Now, how do you prevent hyponatremia? Well, drinking to thirst is sort of suggested as, as the primary way to do that. So, um, you know, using thirst as an indicator of, of when to drink and, and not to avoid overdrinking. Um, but we do know that thirst is not perfect. There are examples of people who quote unquote drank to thirst and developed hyponatremia. Um, so I think having some sort of sweat rate testing that we talked about earlier, but combining that with a measure of thirst can help us to work out whether thirst is appropriate for me. So if you do a sweat rate test, you also measure at the same time how much you drank during that exercise. Uh, You can get a sense of, am I drinking too much, not enough or about right? And then a sense of, you know, well, I was drinking to thirst and I ended up over drinking. Well, maybe I need to be more cautious or I I drank to thirst and became really dehydrated. Um, Maybe I need to be a bit more aggressive with my fluids. So I think having that combination can can be really important. Now, generally speaking, the longer the event, the greater the fluid turnover. So the more sweat you're gonna lose 
on an accumulative point of view and therefore the more total water you're going to drink over the duration of the event. And so that's going to increase the need for sodium to balance out that water, uh, which I alluded to earlier when we talked about the sweat testing piece. Um, and the people that are at most risk of hyponatremia are generally people that do those longer events, uh, people that are smaller because it's easier to overdrink and, and you know, uh, have excess fluid in your body if you're a smaller body to begin with um, and generally the the slower runners one because generally they're producing less heat and therefore their sweat rate is lower they're losing less fluid uh, and secondly they tend to have more access to and opportunities to drink during exercise and can tolerate it better compared to someone who's going really quickly um, who's going to struggle to to access chug down swallow um, and and gastrointestinally tolerate that fluid episode 19 do i need more protein yeah so we were joined by associate professor dan moore from the university of toronto over in canada and also david bryant who's a, a dietitian himself sports dietitian um, but he's also a paratriathlete and competed over at the the tokyo paralympics so i i guess Protein's not something that we typically associate with endurance sports necessarily it's something that people tend to think about as things that you need if you're trying to build bigger muscles in the gym. Um, and certainly the research follows that trend as well. The majority of the studies and therefore the guidelines that we have are really based on research that comes mainly from, from weight training. But as we understood from Dan, who has done some of the, the small amount of work that is out there on endurance exercise and protein, you know, protein is not just needed for building bigger or stronger muscles. Uh, we need it to repair muscles that can be damaged during exercise, particularly endurance exercise where you're doing repetitive actions for a long period of time. Uh, and also the adaptations, you know, the improvements we get from training are driven by building different types or more of specific types of proteins that then help our body adapt to training. Uh, we also uh, spoke to Dan about the fact that protein can actually become, you know, not an insignificant fuel source during endurance exercise. You know, possibly 10 or 15 grams an hour of protein can be burnt during endurance exercise as well. Um, so while there aren't specific guidelines for protein for endurance athletes at this stage, the evidence that we do have suggests that the guidelines that that came from you know the weight training type studies are probably about right for endurance athletes as well. So looking at, uh, as you mentioned in the recovery one earlier, Steph, about 0.2 to 0.4 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight um, per meal over, um, over the day, um, that's probably still a relevant amount. And then that adds up over you know four meals a day um, to about 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilo of protein per day. Um, which is certainly more than the, the general guidelines for sedentary people. Um, there are, I know, a lot of um, teams at the professional and elite level that, that recommend higher amounts of protein than that, and there doesn't seem to be any evidence that that's detrimental or harmful in any way. Um, and I guess they're just being overcautious to make sure that they're going to get enough. Um, the other thing with protein is to spread it out. So rather than having you know 80% of all the protein in your day at dinner time, um, there is sort of a maximum amount of protein per meal that we can actually use for building new proteins within our body. Um, and so you're better to spread that out more evenly across the day. Um, we also spoke to Dan about protein supplements. So it doesn't have to be protein supplements. There's nothing special or magical about protein powders compared to the protein you get in a tin of tuna or a steak or tofu or anything like that. Um, so it can come from any source, uh, any, any meal combination. 
we don't still fully understand all the nuances of that and that's to do with the way that um, protein research is done and, and how you can study these things. You generally have to give isolated sources of um, protein to be able to study this stuff, although some of the newer research techniques are starting to allow us to look at uh, at this in the context of whole meals, so where you might have spaghetti bolognese with the pasta and the tomatoes and the, the mints and vegetables and things like that, as opposed to just studying the meat itself in isolation. Um, so I guess coming back to the question, do I need more protein? Well, that really depends on how much you're eating now. Um, but some endurance athletes might be underdoing the protein and might benefit from more. Um, but you certainly don't need to go out and, and go crazy with huge amounts of it either. Mm. Awesome. Um, episode 20, do I need to stop drinking coffee? Please say no to get the benefits of caffeine. Well, I don't drink coffee, Steph, so I'm not too fussed about this one, although I'm, I'm more than happy with caffeine and other sources of caffeine. Um, we had Dr. Chris Irwin from Griffith University to help us answer this question. So he did one of the caffeine withdrawal studies. As he mentioned, there's only a small handful of these studies. Um, we were also joined by Alistair Donohoe, who was uh, a Paralympian at Tokyo and also Rio. Uh, he's won several silver medals now at, at Paralympics and multiple world championships in paracycling. So he's also a bit of a coffee connoisseur, Al. Um, so in general, caffeine improves performance across a range of exercise types and intensities. Generally, when you look at summaries of the research, the benefits are around 2% across a whole range of different sports. It's, it's roughly around that 2% mark for endurance exercise. Now, people that don't habitually have caffeine, so they don't regularly have caffeine-containing foods or fluids, um, will generally get more benefit from a one-off dose taken before competition compared to someone who has a coffee every day, which is tempting to then think, okay, well, if I do have coffee every day, I should just stop taking it for a few days before my competition or get a benefit. But what you see in the research is that if you withdraw for only a couple of days prior, you actually tend to perform worse because of the withdrawal effects from not having the coffee in those few days beforehand rather than getting a, an extra kick from withdrawing it and then reintroducing it. So to get that kind of benefit, the research suggests you would probably have to withdraw for about a month to see that complete withdrawal and then the, the beneficial effect from essentially being a non-habitual caffeine user. Um, now, the thing to remember also is that apart from the fact that you'll miss your morning coffee, uh, if you're um, withdrawing from caffeine for that period of time, that may actually compromise your training when you go through that withdrawal period. Um, and so it may not be worth, um, and from just lifestyle and, and personal preference perspective, probably not withdrawing, uh, not worth withdrawing in the majority of cases. So overall, it's probably not practical or necessary for most people to withdraw from caffeine. And if you're only withdrawing for a couple of days, you're probably going to do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's move on to episode number 21 for you to bring us home, Steph. Our question was, what are FODMAPs and what's that got to do with exercise? Yeah, so we were lucky enough to bring in the big fish. Um, the biggest in the land. <laughs> so uh, Steph Gaskell and Scotty Hawker, um, who I've had the privilege to work with for, for a long time now. Um, and he's also always been benefited from your advice whether he knows that or not because I often um, correspond with you too Alan um, so he's a pro ultra runner he um, recently came second in triple um, C um, part of UTMB in 2021 
And in 2019, he actually came um, third in uh, UTMB. So any ultra endurance runners out there will will definitely know what, what we're talking about with UTMB. Okay, so FODMAP stands for a really long, scary name. Um, but it, it stands for fermentable oligodimonosaccharides and polyols. All it is is um, the types of poorly or slowly absorbed fermentable carbohydrates and that we have seen can influence gastrointestinal symptoms in susceptible individuals. So in people that may have irritable bowel syndrome or functional gastrointestinal disorders um, or even people with inflammatory bowel disease that have a have a subtype of IBS as well and also in, in individuals that have endometriosis, so low FODMAP diet may be beneficial um, for these individuals. When we, when we look at endurance exercise and particularly ultra-endurance exercise, we do know that gastrointestinal symptoms are very common in these events and the types of, of gastrointestinal symptoms are very similar to being irritable bowel-like symptoms. So we can experience upper gastrointestinal symptoms, so that may be upper abdominal bloating, belching, um, stomach pain or discomfort and lower abdominal bloating or a lot of flatulence or we get altered bowel movements. We may have a lot of loose bowel movements or urgency. We may also experience vomiting and, and nausea. So what some researchers found, and, and one of those researchers was, was Dana Lease, was that a low FODMAP diet may potentially be effective in helping reduce the severity of gut symptoms in athletes. And so some research by Dana Lease and, um, and other colleagues, as well as our group in Monash, looked at whether a low FODMAP diet may be effective in reducing exercise-associated gastrointestinal symptoms in um, athletes. And what uh, we found is that, yes, it can be effective in reducing the severity of gut symptoms during exercise and that we may only need about 24, a 24-hour 24 period of doing that before our particular event that we're participating in. So it's a short-term diet that we just do before the event where we think we may experience symptoms and and, and then we're trying to reintroduce them uh, as, as soon as we can after. You know, whether you go and jump straight away and do that, we'd probably caution against that because as we've already spoken about, about why do I get gut symptoms, there's a large a range of reasons why you may get those symptoms and it's it's definitely not okay FODMAP so your answer that may play a role um, but first of all you want to actually try and understand um, what are the many possible factors of why you may be getting symptoms and maybe FODMAPs might play a part in that. FODMAPs are found in your everyday types of foods so they're found in things like breads, pasta, um, you know, fruits like apples, pears, stone fruits, onion, garlic, and your common sports types of foods. So they can be found in sports gels, drinks, and lollies. So, you know, if you are starting to implement or looking at implementing a low FODMAP diet, it means that there will be a large amount of foods that you are then going to 
removed that is probably part of your everyday diet. So it's really important to make sure that then you are replacing them with other foods that provide you with those same types of, of nutrients that you that you need. So ideally try doing that with a, um, a qualified dietitian experienced in the area would be the way that I'd try and do that. And we know that although FODMAPs may influence symptoms for some people, we actually also know in our work that FODMAPs can can be actually really good for the gut and good for gut health and protective to the gut. So that's why if we do implement a low FODMAP diet, it is only usually being short-term and we try and reintroduce it as much as we can. Uh, And we also know that carbohydrates can be protective to the gut as well. So even if we're implementing low FODMAP, during exercise, we'll consume carbohydrate and that will be um, good for our gut health and, and protective to, to the gut. So that's what FODMAPs are and that's what it's got to do with exercise. But I'd encourage people, please do not go jump on a low FODMAP diet straight away. Make sure that you know if it is relevant to you and that you don't do it short term. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Episode 22 is plant-based better? Yeah, so we were joined by Associate Professor Greg Cox from um, Bonn University and Triathlon Australia, and he was formerly um, based at the Australian Institute of Sport, Tuffleet. And then we were in, we were joined by the um, athlete Katrina Bissett, who's an Olympian 800 meter uh, runner in the the most recent Olympics, and um, she follows a vegan diet. So so that's one of the reasons why we uh, asked to have her on. So is plant based better? I guess kind of maybe a yes and a no in this response. There's there's no advantage or disadvantage in following a plant-based diet from a performance perspective obviously there's lots of ethical reasons and other reasons why you may be following a plant-based diet but I think some of the key points here is when you're following a plant-based diet you need to be very um, sort of plan plan out your your approach and and get familiar with if you're changing your diet and you're no longer going to have animal-based foods, what are the things that then you're going to take out from a nutrient perspective and how are you going to replace that with your plant-based options? So what are the plant-based food sources that are going to then provide those nutrients that you've taken out from from animals? So things like, I guess, key sort of ones that we'd want to think about are protein, dietary protein, dietary iron intake, B12, calcium is another example. And you can definitely get these um, nutrients, vitamins and minerals from plant-based eating but you just need to plan it out. And one of the key things that we mentioned is that there's more similarities in a vegan diet and a mixed diet than than what there are differences. Uh, And whether you're following a animal-based diet or you're following a vegetarian-based diet, you, you basically still need to make sure you're consuming a quality diet either way. And the important thing from a sports nutrition perspective is the timing of of your nutrition as well. And that's important, again, whether you're following an animal-based diet or a plant-based diet. So I think just be really mindful of 
um, the reason you're following a plant-based diet as well because we do know that in some instances, unfortunately, and maybe this is in endurance-based sports, sometimes the reason of why we may follow a plant-based diet may be a reason of how we can become more restrictive in our eating um, and we don't we don't want that to be the reason. So um, plant-based uh, way of eating can be really good, really healthy, but it, you can also eat a really healthy diet if you're eating an animal-based diet as well. So just plan, plan out either way, whichever style of eating you've got, you still want to plan it for, for what particular sport you're, you're participating in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, episode 23, second last one. Does leaner equal faster? We were very lucky to have Associate Professor Gary Slater. Um, he's from the University of the Sunshine Coast and also um, works at the Australian Institute of Sport and played a massive role in coordinating everything that happened from the nutrition angle uh, in, the, in the Olympics. And we were also joined by um, Olympian 5,000 metre runner Izzy Bat-Doyle from Adelaide, don't we know it? Yes, we do. And so <laughs> the question, does leaner equal faster? Or as you also mentioned, Alan, as well as Gary, does lighter equal faster? So if we talk about lighter, we're probably talking more about total body weight. Whereas when we talk about leaner, it's referring probably more so to body composition. So total body fat versus total uh, body mass. So total body weight is important, you know, if we're riding or if we're running where we're, you know, we're obviously working against gravity. So if we're trying to lose weight, we want to make sure that we're losing body fat, not muscle, because obviously if we're losing muscle, that that's really important to help generate power. Um, and generally as an athlete, we don't want to lose power. So, hey, we might have gotten lighter, but actually we may not be performing as well because we've actually lost what helps us generate generate power and, and power output. If you're trying to get there too quickly or if you're skimping on nutrition, then your performance isn't going to be good anyway because you're not getting in enough energy to be able to perform um, and get the most out of your, your training adaptations. And the other thing that we know is when we, you know, change our dietary habits and change our way of eating, that influences our mental health a lot as well and can have a lot of implications with our, our psychological health too. So we want to make sure that however we're doing it, it's in a healthy manner. And we'd really strongly encourage you to, to do that with a qualified dietitian so that you do it in a, in a smart way and you work out with the, with the person, do you actually need to lose body weight or body fat? How much do you need to do it? How, how long do you have to do it and what's, what's a healthy manner of doing it and what's realistic? Yep, absolutely. And that's a good segue into our final topic to bring us home, Steph. Episode 24, Can I Underfuel My Training? So we were joined by Margot Rogers from the University of Canberra and the Australian Institute of Sport. And then we were lucky enough to have um, two um, professional cyclists. We had Kate Perry. She's a cyclist with Knights LMLY Racing and Sophie Mackay, um, 2016 National Criterium Champ. 
And so when we talk about um, REDS, we're referring to relative energy deficiency in sport. And I, I guess that the syndrome of REDS refers to impaired physiological functioning, which is caused by relative energy deficiency. And it can influence impairments of metabolic rate, of menstrual function, of bone health, immune health, cardiovascular health. And the the kind of the cause behind it is low energy availability. And what low energy availability is, is it's a mismatch between an athlete's energy intake, so their diet, and the energy that they're expending in exercise. Um, and it's leaving an inadequate energy for your basic bodily functions to be able to maintain optimal health and performance. So when energy availability doesn't match resting energy expenditure, then your body will adjust and it will it will start to try and conserve energy and it will look at energy processes that aren't so critical to your short-term survival. So it'll start to conserve energy in terms of reproduction or bone turnover. And you can also get your metabolic rate, your resting metabolic rate can be suppressed as well. And there appears to be sort of 10 physiological and performance consequences. So, you know, if, if you are experiencing REDS, it can have effects on your gastrointestinal health, cardiovascular growth and development, endocrine, bone health, menstrual function, immunological performance can be, you can have, you could experience decreased muscle strength, decreased endurance performance. You could experience loss in concentration, decrease in coordination. You could have impaired judgment, decreased training response, increase your injury risk. Um, so there's a wide range of, of consequence that can consequences that can happen from rent and we heard um, some of those consequences from the two cyclists that we had so Kate Perry unfortunately um, experienced you know a lot of the the menstrual disturbances and it affected her performance as well where she just didn't kind of have sometimes the stamina she might have been able to ride up the hill really well but then if she was needing power and racing on the flats or downhill she just kind of didn't have it and then with Sophie she kind of one of the main things we saw with her was the performance aspect. She just couldn't train um, and she had a significant amount of rest and it took a long time for her to be able to come back and train and compete. So, you know, and I think the other thing as well with REDS is that it can be very individual and in how people respond and some people may be able to come back a bit quicker than others um, and perhaps that depends on how long they've had it and the severity of how long or how much their energy was under their needs. And it can have a, a significant consequence not only on their performance, but it could be, you know, have some lifelong effects on their health. Um, you know, if we talk about bone health, there's people that can get osteopenia. There's some athletes that can even develop osteoporosis. You know, you, you might be more prone to experiencing stress fractures. So, 
yeah, it's a, it's a really important thing that you want to consider. And I think it's probably more common than what we, what we think. But the good thing is that we can reverse those changes and, you know, we can make improvements to performance and health outcomes if, if they have been affected. Yeah, yep, absolutely. All right, that is all 24 episodes, Steph, a year in podcasting. So um, a big thanks for everyone listening um, over the, the whole year that that's been. It's been um, obviously a, a pretty hectic year for everyone. Um, and, yeah, we, we hope you found our, our podcast um, useful um, and educational. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, certainly great to, to see the audience slowly grow over the course of the year. And um, we're actually discussing this morning, Steph, we actually cracked the top 10 on the Apple podcast charts for nutrition Woo-hoo. in Australia um, for the first time ever uh, today, or well, as of the day of recording. Um, mm. So yeah, that's been been great. And obviously, big thanks to all those people out there listening and, and everyone who's who's joined just recently and, and um had a listen to the podcast or shared it with their friends and and told other people to, to get involved as well. It's been fantastic. And also we should add um, thank you so much to the guests that have been on because um, you guys are the ones that have um, obviously made a massive contribution to getting us there and giving up your time. Um, we really appreciate it and um, get so much out of it ourselves. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So all our guest experts, whether they're researchers, practitioners, but of course, our athletes and coaches that have been involved as well. Um, Yeah. Thanks so much for all your time and your wisdom. Okay. So with that in mind and coming to the end of our first year of podcasting, uh, we're at a stage, I guess, where we're doing a little bit of a review of how we do things, um, working out what we should do more of, what we should do less of, should we tweak things or keep them the same. So we're actually going to have a couple of polls coming out through Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at The Long Munch over the next uh, week or so just to get people's feedback on a, a few different topics. Obviously, we we invite you to send feedback whenever you like, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll sort of solicit that a little bit more specifically in terms of some of these polls um, for, for some of the questions that we've got in terms of whether we should keep things the way they are or, or make some tweaks to the podcast. But we've also got some big questions coming up next year, some big topics that we're going to answer on the podcast, Steph. So we might give people a little bit of a sneaky peek of what 2022 has got in store. We're going to look at some things like how to use your training data and and you know, anything you collect from wearables. What's the the use of that? How does that help or not help us with our nutrition planning? And what sort of feedback does that give us? Uh, in terms of our nutrition for running, cycling, or triathlon, we're going to look at things like continuous glucose monitors, which have been all the rage over the last sort of six to 12 months. And um, is, is it all hype? Is there a, a useful purpose for them? If so, what is that and how you should use it? We're going to talk about the role of nutrition in um, prevention and treatment of illness. So, you know, does nutrition have a role in increasing the risk of getting sick? coughs and colds and things like that, or I guess more severely things like glandular fever, which is obviously an athlete's worst nightmare other than stress fractures. Uh, We're going to look uh, more broadly at supplements and I guess how we think about different sports nutrition supplements. Uh, And we've had a few questions that have been very specific on um, sort of athlete groups. So younger athletes, also um, older adults that are competing in in endurance and ultra endurance events, uh, and one specifically around female athletes as well. So looking forward to to bringing those to everyone next year. Mm, Can't wait. Can't wait. 
Um, and I guess just a, a reminder as well, we've got three more episodes um, for the year uh, going right up to Christmas. Then we'll be taking a break for a few weeks um, yep. and leaving uh, you guys in peace for, for a wee little while. Um, and next episode, we're up to episode number 27, Alan. Yep, we are. And our topic is going to be one I think that a lot of people will be interested in. Um, and I was discussing this actually with someone uh, in the clinic just last week. So our question is, I hate gels and sports drinks. What else is there? And we're going to have the lovely Dr. Gemma Sampson to fill us in on that. Gemma is a sports dietitian. She's actually an Australian sports dietitian, but based over in Girona in Spain. She's been there for several years now, and she's actually just about to get on a flight if we'll let her in. I don't know what's happening with the borders at the moment, but um, she's due to get on a flight any week now and, and come back to Australia for the first time in several years. So um, Gemma's been over there. She's done some work in World Tour Cycling, uh, a lot of work in triathlon as well, and she's also very passionate about um, preparing DIY sports nutrition snacks. So she's got a great range of things to, to talk about and um, some suggestions and, and I guess things to think about in what makes a good sort of DIY sports nutrition snack as well. Yeah, yep. Super common question um, that we get. So I, I think this will be a popular um, episode for our listeners. Yep. Uh, but we won't keep you any longer. We will love and leave you and see you in the next uh, episode. Yeah, we're just going to blow out the birthday candle or one of them, and then we're done. <laughs> See you, everyone. See ya.